I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, we'll be talking to the former Solicitor General of the United States, Don Verrilli, about the Trump administration's refusal to defend the Affordable Care Act in court. We'll also talk about Trump's decision to pick a fight with all of our closest allies while cozying up to dictators like Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. What a great day, Dan. should also say, as you've noticed... we've going to be an American. <laughs> we've switched pod hosts this week. Uh, John Lovett is on vacation. And on Thursday, our friend Ben Rhodes is in Los Angeles, so he will sub in as a co-host in studio with me and Tommy on Thursday's pod. And then Dan was flexible enough to make today work, so thank you, Dan. Uh, welcome to the Monday pod. Happy, happy to do it. <laughs> um, how many days till the book release, Dan? Are we, we're about a week out, right? We are. By the time you hear this, we'll be one week out. And so I got a couple things to say about this. All right. First, you know the saying, practice makes perfect? Mm-hmm. That is apparently not true because I have been just hawking this book left and right on this podcast, and I've got no better at it because as many, many, many of you pointed out on Twitter, the last two times I have tried to pitch the book, I have failed to say the title, which is basically <laughs> Book Pitching 101. So the title of the book is Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Trump, and Twitter. So there you go. It's said. It makes it easier to find on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all of your other places where you can find the books. Second, last week we challenged people to get to 10,000 books pre-sold before release date. And I don't have final numbers yet, but based on the quote-unquote early vote of pre-sales, uh, we are getting close, but we are not there yet. But if we keep it up, I think we can hit this goal by Tuesday blow through it. And that is good because I get to go to New York and tell my publisher, I told you so. And more importantly, for everyone other than me, we get to uh, write a slightly bigger check to our friends at Swing Left who have been wonderful partners uh, in helping win the 2018 elections and in uh, working with me on trying to leverage the, the book pre-sales to help the greater good here. So is, please buy the book. What's the book please called? Do it before Tuesday. I think we can get to 10,000. Maybe we can get to 11 or 12,000 if we keep going at it. Uh, what's the book called, Dan? Uh, yes, We Still Can. There we oh. go. Politics in the Age of Obama, Trump, and Twitter. All right. Let's talk about the temper tantrum that Donald Trump and his senior staff threw at the G7 meeting in Canada, which is an annual global economic summit that includes all of our closest allies. A um, couple things happened. First... Trump told reporters on his way to the summit that Russia should be part of the G7 again. Specifically, he said, Russia should be in this meeting. Why are we having a meeting without Russia being in the meeting? And then he followed up later by saying, quote, something happened a while ago where Russia is no longer in. Of course, he's right. It used to be the G8. 
Um, but the something that Trump was referring to was Russia invading the sovereign nations of Georgia and then Ukraine in 2014, where Putin annexed Crimea, uh, which, of course, was a violation of international law. Dan, what possible reason is there for Trump to say something like this other than the one we all fear, which is that Vladimir Putin has some kind of leverage over our president? What kind of leverage would that be? I'm trying to think. What would Brian Butler say right now? Yeah, Brian would go Look. right to the P tape. Yeah, he, he, would, he, would, he would say that leverage is worth its weight in gold, if you will. Um, so, so, I mean, I have no idea. I really have no idea other than he just feels more comfortable with Putin than with Merkel, Macron. Trudeau, Theresa May, or others. I think he feels pretty comfortable with his quote-unquote buddy Shinzo, uh, the Prime Minister of Japan. But <laughs> it is a truly bizarre statement. And it's worth noting, it's not just the annexing of Crimea, which was a uh, complete disregard for the world order, but also that then Russian separatists shot down an airplane, killing hundreds right. of people, a crime to which the Russians have continued to cover up uh, – for years now. And the idea that we're just, we're going to go into this and just reward Putin. <laughs> I, did, I did laugh when I heard him say that he, why would we have a meeting without the Russians? Which is exactly what Don Jr. would say. <laughs> also, they interfered in our fucking election. Oh yeah, and there was probably, that. But for and they one probably reason. Interfered in the, and they probably interfered in the Brexit campaign as well. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> I mean, the only other thing I can think of if Putin doesn't have some kind of leverage over Trump, because, again, I'm like, I don't want to go to the conspiracies. I want to I want to try to really think this out. Like maybe Trump is just trying to troll all of us because he knows everyone thinks he's too cozy with Putin. So he wants to say fuck you to everyone who believes that. Um, I don't know. But it's like it'd be, it would be one thing if he was the kind of president who wanted better relations with every country. And, you know, but then it's like, why didn't he say why isn't China in the meeting? Why isn't Brazil in the meeting? Why isn't India in the meeting? Like he didn't pick out other countries around the world who aren't part of the G7, who are who have gigantic economies, um, who could probably play a role in these kind of conversations. He only singled out Russia. Why the fuck would he do that? Yeah, I guess the most generous explanation, which I do not believe, I do not. But I guess the most generous one would be. Russia is here. They're playing an important role in the world. Some would argue for good. Some would argue – most people would argue for ill. And it seems dumb to have all the other um, countries together but not Russia. That's a bad reason because there have to be consequences for actions. And Russia has done nothing to try to get themselves back in the good graces of the G7. They have instead been more aggressive, more causing more problems. And so it is – I mean, maybe he was. I mean, maybe instead of just trolling the libs, he would in America. He wanted to troll the the other leaders of the G seven. It, yeah, it's it's sort of mind boggling. I mean, so the Russia thing becomes even stranger when you consider how the rest of the summit went on Saturday. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau held a press conference, and in this press conference, he basically announced that all of the G seven countries, you know, they had a lot of different disagreements over the course of the weekend, but they all agreed on a joint economic statement that they would put out together. And he said everyone was going to sign off. And the White House told reporters on Air Force One 
that Trump was going to sign off and they'd be getting this statement. Then when a reporter asked Trudeau how Canada would respond to Trump's tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum, Trudeau reiterated that Canada would be imposing tariffs on American goods as a response. And then Trump responds on Twitter by calling Trudeau dishonest, weak, and then said that the U.S. would refuse to sign the G7 joint statement. And then one of Trump's top economic advisors, Peter Navarro, said that there is a, quote, special place in hell for Justin Trudeau. Dan, how big of a deal is this? And what kind of consequences can we expect from this sort of thing? I I just, it's so mind boggling. It's just, it's mind boggling. It is so, like, you just have to wonder. Like, you sort of go down, like, the tree of possibilities for how we got to this place. Like, one is Trump is up was concerned about the amount of coverage his invitation to Russia to rejoin the G, to turn the G7 back into the G8 he was concerned by how much coverage that got so he wanted to do something to distract so he decided to pick a fight with Canada which did <laughs> which i mean it seems weird Canada is not necessarily who we should be fighting with but it did knock everything else off the front pages or the headlines or trending on Twitter or whatever metric we use to decide what is newsworthy these days and so we talked about the the fight between Trudeau and Trump instead of Trump coasting up to Russia once again. So that's one possibility. And that's sort yeah, of the I Trump guess. is strategic in a sense, right? Maybe it's gut instinct, right? I always say it's intellectual. It's instinctual, not intellectual. Or mm. he's just a never-ending mall of insecurity. And the slightest thing sets him off. With, and it's one thing where he's just in the campaign and he's sending angry tweets about about you know Ted Cruz's father or whatever else, which are all terrible things, but they don't have actual policy consequences. Now we are but this will have actual consequences on our relationship with Canada, our our economic relationship with Canada, the economy itself, the cost of goods and services in America, or cost of goods in America. And I just it's it's mystifying. I do Here's the thing where I think it matters, which is – you and I know this from the White House, which is you can never get to the bottom of your inbox in the White House. There all, all, you know, there's just not enough time and energy to do the things that need to get done. Your policy challenges, policy opportunities, uh, legislation, regulations, et cetera. It's just – it's a zero – for the presidency is zero sum. And we're now spending time and energy – as a, as a White House, a government, and a country fighting with Canada, who are our friends, our closest friends, some would say, both geographically. I mean, they have a team in the NBA. Like, what are we, what are we doing? It's so nuts. <laughs> They're also our big – like, Canada and Mexico are two of our biggest trading partners in the world, and we have now pissed both countries off. Like, that is going to have economic consequences for Americans who buy products that have – that whether the whole product or part of the product is made in Canada and Mexico, which is a lot of shit that people buy in this country. Um, I, I, see, I read this Politico story and it says, you know, for Trump, the decision may be a political winner. The president's base is deeply skeptical of international cooperation. OK, I understand why that's like the, the, very, the like top level, most shallow analysis possible. But like 
I think his base might be skeptical of international cooperation only in the sense that they think that trade deals that we've made with other country over other countries over the years do not do anything for American workers and American consumers. And, you know, as you go into some of these deals, there may be some truth to that. But now that this is a different thing. Now that Trump is engaged in a trade war that he started, by the way, him imposing tariffs on, as we've said before, Trump imposing tariffs on other countries really means that Donald Trump is charging American consumers more money when they buy foreign goods. And guess what? Every time we go to the store, we're buying foreign goods or we're buying stuff that has parts that are made in foreign countries. And so everything now from beer cans to soda cans to automobiles, uh, even U.S.-made automobiles have parts that are made with steel and aluminum that are made in other countries. So this is going to cost people. And I don't think his base is going to like that. It is, uh, and there are there are consequences on the world stage here. The, you know, it was. I don't think this was taken too seriously, but the, you know, someone said, I can't remember. I apologize, but I can't remember some which world leader said it. But it's like maybe we could be the G six, right? And the idea that which is not. I don't. I mean, Tommy or Ben Rhodes or uh, some of our other foreign policy expert friends could correct me. I can't imagine a world in which the U.S. Uh, is not part of the G whatever, but it is. It just says so much about how we are now. We instead of being who the world turns to when when they need leadership, uh, whether it's diplomatic, moral, military, it's not something we've always lived up to, but that is the role we have played. And so instead of doing that, we are now a problem for other countries to manage, and that just has consequences across the board for how we're seeing it is whenever we have our next president, whether it be in 2021 or God forbid, 2025, the next United States president, secretary of state and diplomatic corps are going to have to dig ourselves out of what is the absolute low point for us relations in the world, in the modern age. And, And Trump has done that in record time, simply by just being an asshole to the people who are our friends. For no good reason. I mean, this is also, you know, talking about the political consequences, um, you know, in the latest Fox News poll, uh, which came out last week and, by the way, showed that Democrats, I think, are up nine points in the generic ballot. So um, that lead has opened again. Um, but, you know, they have the main reasons that people approve of Trump who approve of Trump are sent. You know, the, uh, one of the main reasons is, you know, the economy is doing well. Well, the main reasons that people disapprove of Trump is that they don't think he's capable of doing the job and they don't think he has a good temperament. And his reaction, uh, his temper tantrum that he threw about Justin Trudeau's remarks sort of demonstrates both of those worst qualities. Um, does this sort of validate the critique that was made of Trump way back when in 2016 by Hillary Clinton, by Barack Obama? I mean, <laughs> as you toss up that softball for me to swing away at, <laughs> actually, I think in hindsight, we dramatically understated the dangers of Trump's temperament. Yeah. Because I think even I, I mean, I think maybe even you as well, believed that there would be, he would, should not be president under any circumstances and is a bad person on every level. But that there would be some machinery of government and that would hem in some of the insanity, right? Like yeah. I really didn't think that in the same week we would be fighting with Justin Trudeau and picking up Kim Jong Un's hotel incidentals at a summit. <laughs> like it is, I mean, it is it's it's bonkers what we're 
what we're doing here. And I think that the point you make in that Fox News poll is critically important to Democrats. One of the best arguments that we had against Republicans in the fight to repeal the ACA uh, during the Affordable Care Act during Barack Obama's presidency was that it was a distraction from other things. Like, why would we? There are so many things the country needs to be doing. Why are we voting for the 50th time to try to repeal a law that's been on the books and is helping people? And I think that there is an element. I've been I've been arguing this for a while now that I think the, the two elements of the critique against Trump and by extension Republicans is to argue against the chaos and the corruption. And they, we have to – but to make the chaos thing work, it can't just be an aesthetic view like, man, I'm so tired of all the – of the news and the tweets. It has to have consequences to people's lives. That's right. That – and I think that there is an opportunity in the tariffs and in this trade war with Canada that, that it's going to affect people in their pocketbooks and that we have real things we need to be doing, whether it's fixing education or in, improving health care or um, – infrastructure or whatever it is. And we are, instead of doing those things, we are fighting with Canada. <laughs> and I think that that is, that has to be part of the argument against Trump, but we have to make it, we have to show how, it, we have to show a cost, both in people's pocketbooks and an opportunity cost for the country on the things that people really on a bipartisan basis agree need to be dealt with. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I think drawing the line from the chaos and corruption to actual real world consequences for people is uh, is critical here. Um, there's also this larger question on foreign policy, right? Which is, um, you know, a few weeks ago, <laughs> a senior uh, White House official told Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic that Trump's foreign policy doctrine can be described as "We're America, bitch," um, which is just really something. Um, <laughs> And yet, so so this is sort of his, like, I don't care about the rest of the world, no apologies kind of stuff. And that's certainly how he has acted towards our allies and how he acted towards um, all of our allies at the G7. Um, and yet, when it comes to dictators and autocrats like Putin and Kim Jong-un, you know, as you were just saying, Trump couldn't be nicer or more accommodating. Uh, like, he's, he's paying for Kim Jong-un's hotel, he's making coins, um, he's not imposing sanctions on Putin – why do you think why do you think that Donald Trump is more comfortable with autocrats and dictators than he is with sort of the heads of democracies around the world? I mean, I think it is simply though I mean from a from a attitudinal perspective, he feels closest to them. He doesn't care yeah. about the things that most leaders care about. He cares about accumulating and maintaining power. And power is in in it is a good in and of itself. It is not to be used for something. We are not getting elected to office so that we can reduce regulations or cut taxes or on the Democratic side, help fight climate change or give health care to people or raise the minimum wage. It is the power is all that matters. And if that and if the policy positions that you need to achieve that power are one way he'll do that. The other way he'll, and if they're different, he would change. He does not. All he wants is power. And that makes him very similar. That, that is what he has in, in, in common with Putin, Kim Jong-un, um, with, uh, Xi in China. And, and there's just like there he and Trudeau or Macron or Merkel or um, 
Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or anyone else, they're like, they don't speak the same language. He doesn't even, he cannot inside that little brain of his, he can't fathom the idea that you do these jobs to do something. He does these jobs to have this job and keep it as long as possible. And that's because there is no, I mean, you see this in the fact that there is no coherent governing or policy ideology. He doesn't even know what to do. The reason that everything is about owning the libs and doing what Barack Obama does is because he has no other framework by which to make a decision. And so when I can't, I can't even imagine what the conversations are like with other world leaders because they're not speaking even, they may not, even though they're using translators, they're not speaking a language the other one understands. I also think it just comes down to the fact that he is lazy and ignorant and a narcissist and democracy is messy it requires compromise it requires diplomacy it requires um not taking all the credit yourself and working with other people it requires dealing with the media and the press which also can be very critical and all of these things that are required in democracy which is really hard work he doesn't want to have anything to do with that. He's used to being the head of his business and the head of his organization and snapping his fingers and getting everything he wants. And when he looks around the world and he sees Putin or sees the head of China or any of these autocrats, all they have to do is snap their fingers and something in their country gets done. And if they don't like their coverage, then they, um, you know, then they shut down the media because they have state-run media. Or like what Putin does, he you know uh, does something to journalists, you know, kills journalists, or at least um, you know controls the media. Um, and Trump sort of looks at that and he's like, "Man, that's probably a pretty good deal," and that's very dangerous. It's not like he. It, it may not be that he started off as this like sinister, you know, dictator and waiting here where he's trying to like take over the world, but it, but he's just he's a lazy, ignorant narcissist, and he wants everyone to do what he says. And democracy is not that. <laughs> democracy requires a lot of work. And so he looks at all these leaders that are trying to, like, work with other people. And he's like, fuck that. I mean, there was all these reports that he went to the G7. He didn't want to go. He went late. He left early. He was falling asleep during some of the meetings. Like, he doesn't want to do any of this shit. He just wants to, like, snap his fingers, get stuff done, and take the credit. Yeah, you hit on a really important point, which is other leaders of both parties in this country and frankly other parties in the traditional liberal democracies that make up the G7 they believe that the fundamentals of democracy are things worth protecting trump views them as simply annoyances that prevent him from doing what he wants to do and so that i mean he he has like i sort of hate it's like cheap to do that trump's a fascist or he's an authoritarian or he's a dictator like we're not living in an authoritarian government yet uh, in the United States, but he has the approach. If he could, he would be an authoritarian because that's just, he doesn't care about democracy. And yeah. it is, I mean, it's it's not good. That's what it is. It's just simply not good. Yeah. And I do think though, what that requires is for Democrats and, you know, whichever Republicans, uh, if there are any out there want to join along, um, it requires a defense of democracy itself as we fight against Trump, you know? And I do think that as we look towards the election, obviously, you know, the economy has to come first and healthcare and all these issues. But what he's doing and and what he's what he's trying to fight against here is it, it's something larger. And it's a defense of, you know, why democracy still is the best system of governance in the world, which is not something that we'd ever think we'd have to defend internally, <laughs> at least not in our lifetime. Um, but I, I do think that's necessary with Trump. 
Uh, and speaking of other Republicans, um, after this whole G7 debacle, um, Jeff Flake, Susan Collins, Ben Sass, John McCain, all the usual suspects, they all tweeted their disapproval of Trump's behavior and, of course, did nothing else. Um, what else could some of these Republicans do if they wanted to actually do more than just tweet about it? The tweets make me so angry. It's like, don't even, don't even tweet. <laughs> no, just like, we're tired of your tweets. Sad tweets are the new thoughts and prayers from Republicans. <laughs> and it is like, they are in charge of committees. They could propose laws. They could have hearings. They could use subpoena power. They could call witnesses. They could ask for documents. There is a, like, they have, they are a separate but equal branch of government. And so they have powers that extend beyond 280 characters of sadness. And so, I mean, they, but they don't, I mean, and the, some people say, well, Mitch McConnell won't let him do anything. Well, yeah, that's probably true because he's terrible. But you could still use your committee. You could try to do things. You could you could push legislation. You could work with Democrats. God fucking forbid. But you could work with Democrats to try to bring some of these bills to the floor because there will be majorities on some of these things. You could do a sense of the Senate saying Canada is our friend, not our enemy. And so, like, they have a set of tools. Like, let's be honest, the power of the executive, despite what the Constitution says, in particularly in areas like foreign policy, exceed the ability of Congress in a lot of ways to try to hem it in. But there are things they can do to make an actual policy difference and raise holy hell beyond a tweet. And so, I mean, it is available to them. They just won't do it because they are all – it is a party of Trump supplicants now. That is that is what they are because that is what they now believe to be the best politics. The only potential check on Donald Trump is a Democratic Congress. That is it. There are – Zero Republicans who have shown that they are willing to check Trump at all, even the ones who are tweeting, because like you said, the tweets don't matter anymore. It was one thing like the first time Jeff Flake got up on the Senate floor and and, and made a speech or the or the first time that, you know, Susan Collins did something. Then you thought, okay, maybe they're starting with the speech. Maybe then they'll graduate to some real action. Now it's clear that these people don't want to do anything. Or they're too afraid to do anything, or they're unwilling to do anything, or, or they're secretly happy with the agenda. Whatever it may be, they're not doing anything. If you want some kind of a check on this president, if you want to curtail his power in some way, even in a small way, the only option you have is a Democratic Congress in November. That's it. Um, so thanks for reminding us of that, Jeff Flake, Susan Collis. <laughs> Vote them all out, every single one of them. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom, an official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it. Okay, so we're recording this before Trump's uh, post-North Korea summit press conference. But let's talk about all the expectations and potential outcomes heading into this thing. Um, Trump's people are basically saying that his main message to Kim Jong-un is, you know, give up your nukes and we'll make sure that you and your people are rich and safe. Um, So my first question is, no matter what happens here, how does does Kim Jong-un trust Trump to keep his word on any deal. And second, how do any of us trust whatever Trump and Kim say about what happened during the summit? Well, John, I think you're being deeply unfair to Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump, when this, when this is over, when the summit is over, he is going to sit down with one of America's toughest journalists for a hard-hitting half-hour interview about the summit. And the truth will come out from the question, <laughs> the deeply incisive questions of one, Sean Hannity. Well, there we go. So no, we have, everyone is a liar. Why would we believe anyone? We have two guys who are known for their dishonesty, who are going to communicate to us, to their people through state TV. That is what's going to happen. So we're, there, there's no real way to know. And it's deeply dangerous that we sent in an ignoramus to have a one-on-one discussion with a murderous dictator about the future of nuclear security in the world. It's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. It's re- it's just ridiculous. I mean, the, the meeting is supposed to be one-on-one. They're not going to have uh, any staff present, what I read. And so <laughs> Donald Trump, we know, the one consistent thing about Donald Trump is that he lies to us all the time. We've caught him in a million lies. The press has caught him in a million lies. Whatever the fucking debate about whether you want to call it a lie or not a lie they are misstatements. They're lies. He doesn't tell the truth to the American people. That is the one thing we know about him. So whatever he has said in this press conference, which you all know by now, but we don't, um, we have no way of knowing if it's true. And we have no way of knowing if Kim Jong-un's story is true either, because he's also a liar. We have two liars meeting about the fate of the world and nuclear weapons. And then they're going to come out and they're going to give press conferences. And we're all going to pretend like this is going to tell us something about what happened. Why would we do that? (laughs) Why would we pretend that this is going to give us any information that we can rely on? I don't understand. Like we obviously we're not in the prediction business, so we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, But it, it does feel like both sides are more interested in the spectacle than the substance. Yeah. And that they both have real incentive to at least walk away in the first day with a win of some kind. Like, even if there's no agreement that we'll meet again. Right. Um, you know, so it's like, 
I think they both do not want this to blow up in their face. So it's possible that Trump's like we're dealing with two um, fairly unpredictable beings here. So, I mean, let's not forget, as we just mentioned, Trump is fighting with Canada right now. So he can fight with anyone. But on its face, it feels like we're going to where people are they're going to sit down. They're going to have a discussion. They're going to make some measure of of a decision to keep talking, which is how even with normal leaders, this is how this would most likely happen. Or at least it's a little weird because we're sort of putting the cart before the horse by having by bringing the the two principles to speak to each other so soon in the process. But usually people, the, the discussions don't blow up in the room. They may blow up later when the debt when you get to the actual details, because I can't speak for Kim Jong-un, but I do know that Donald Trump is not a details guy. So it doesn't feel like he's getting into the nitty gritty of the inspections regime we would be interested in in exchange for sanctions relief. Which Trump admitted. Trump said he, he thinks Trump said he thinks he's well prepared because he doesn't have to prepare much. <laughs> it's all about attitude. Um, and this is what Axios which calls did, his – go ahead. But let me can I say this one thing about this, which is yeah. – and his evidence for why he didn't need to prepare was – that Hillary Clinton prepared for the debates and he won the presidency. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay. Great. Great. Smart. This this is this is what Axios calls his his great man theory, Trump's great man theory, which is Trump thinking this is all about personalities. Um is that what diplomacy is all about? Just two personalities in a room making a deal? Um that is what a lot of the media would like to think it is about. Yeah, which is why this plays to Trump's advantage is because the media covers spectacle and they do not – and they cover individuals and personalities and they do not do a good enough job covering like systemic conditions that lead to certain decisions being made. Yeah, we cover it like Shakespeare and not substance, right? So that's – like we have to – there has to be a narrative arc and there has to be a protagonist and an antagonist and a hero's journey and all the other things you learn in Creative Writing 101. and what gets lost in that is the, as you point out, the broader forces that are the things that actually drive political sentiment and world events, as opposed to just two dudes in a room, which is how the Trump people are pitching this. Yeah, and we can look at that and say, okay, what brought Kim Jong Un to the table? Well, a couple of things. One, um, it, it may be that the sanctions on North Korea have gotten to a point where. Their economy is suffering so badly that Kim Jong-un wants the sanctions to go away. Uh, number two, Kim Jong-un is at the table because he has finally developed the capability to launch a nuclear weapon and potentially strike the United States. And so now that he has that power and thinks he can be taken seriously, he will go to the negotiating table and start talking. Um, so these are – it wasn't – I saw somewhere, you know – Oh, I think this was an axis as well. They were like, even some Democrats have said that uh, Trump's madman routine on Twitter, calling him, you know, rocket man and all this kind of stuff has brought Kim Jong-un to the table. Bullshit. <laughs> I don't know which Democrats said that, but they're stupid. Um, there, there, are, there are broader systemic conditions that brought Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table, and it was not Donald Trump's fucking tweets. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's – I mean – there are a couple of things on the Democrats here. One is part of the argument was that's how we got the hostages back. So what crazy tweets of Barack Obama's led to the hostages that came back during Barack Obama's presidency? Or George Bush's or Bill Clinton's. Like the, how, many, how many administrations have gotten hostages from North Korea? Yeah, Right. 
And second, I do think that the Democratic response here is not to try to get to the hawkish side of Trump on North Korea. That is correct. Like we can we can point out that he has given away the store at the front end. He has given Kim Jong Un uh, recognition on the international stage that he would never otherwise get um, from agreeing to this um, to this summit. And that's a critique. It's a, a critique of his strategic approach of achieving a diplomatic solution. But we should be for a diplomatic solution here. We don't like. I don't want to get to the world where. Our sort of partisan polarization suggests that, well, if Trump's going to do diplomacy, then we're going to call diplomacy soft and we're going to try to be even tougher on North Korea than Trump. I think that's I think there's no political point in that. I think it's but it's also just it's just stupid. Like we can we can, you know, the RNC today to commemorate Trump's historic summit sends out a oppo research document trying to compare Trump's success to Obama's fares in North Korea. Let's be better in the RNC here and just let's be let's be forthright in our critique, but let's not try to choose a political position simply because it's the polar opposite of Trump's on North Korea. No, I I will praise the willingness of the Trump administration to say, you know, there's nothing wrong with engaging in diplomacy, even it's even if it's with a dictator with nuclear weapons, that we should meet some of these leaders one on one. Um, what I'm critiquing is the fact that we sent a fucking moron to go do the job <laughs> who is bragging about how he's not prepared, who has not studied the issues at all, who doesn't care, who hasn't prepared for the meeting at all. Um, you know, that that's the problem with this. It's not the problem. The, the negotiation and the diplomacy itself is not the problem. The problem is who we're sending. And that's always going to be the case. Um, would you, given a choice, would you send, you can, you can send one of these three people. Donald Trump, Dennis Rodman, or the person who came up with the idea of renaming the International House of Pancakes to be the International House of Burgers? <laughs> um, definitely the IHOB person, because I don't know. They got, they got them a bunch of attention today, so who knows? Um, but that's a tough one. Certainly not. Den- Den- I love the whole Dennis Rodman storyline coming back into, uh, into play here. Who was who the person? That's great. Donald Trump, was, Dennis. Oh, was it? It was, it, it was Trump. Flack, J. Hogan Gidley, who explained that uh, Dennis Rodman and Trump had some sort of relationship because Dennis Rodman was the greatest rebounder in NBA history, which is a is a debatable but arguable point. Yeah. And Trump was the greatest negotiator in the history of the world. So the two of them had something in common, which was basically North Korea style propaganda emanating from our own White House via our own state TV, Fox News. Yeah, no, makes total sense. Um, okay, let's do worst outcome, best outcome of these negotiations. What do you think? The, I mean, the worst outcome? Do we? We don't. I don't know if we have to say it out loud. I think we can all guess what the worst outcome. Yeah, here yeah, we, is. We, we we know what the worst outcome is. I mean, um, best outcome is ironically the Iran deal, but for North Korea. Right, and I think that is. I think that is the test here. Is does what comes out of this? And look, I don't think we should. Again. We need patience here. Negotiations and diplomacy require patience. I don't think that out of this summit, anyone should necessarily expect, especially since they're only going to meet for a few hours and they've already like moved up their departure and leaving early, that these guys are going to walk out of here with a full deal. Like maybe it's just the beginning of uh, many different you know negotiating sessions. But I think at the end of the day, we have to say like, does this deal match, or is it better than than the Iran deal? which had 
tough, verifiable international inspections. Um, it's probably even harder for uh, for various reasons for international inspectors to go into North Korea and make sure there are no nuclear weapons or nu- nuclear weapon production anywhere than uh, it was even in Iran. Uh, is Kim willing to give up all of his nuclear making capacity? Um, Iran, of course, we didn't think they had the, a, a bomb by the time that the d- deal was done, but they had a lot of uranium enrichment capacity. Um, and so the question is, can we have that same verifiable result with North Korea? Um, and I think that's – and look, Trump didn't think that the Iran deal was any good. So now we'll see if he gets a deal that is as good or better than the Iran deal. Somehow I feel like the right-wing critics of the Iran deal will not hold Trump in his deal with North Korea to a similar standard they held Obama's. I feel like for this brief moment they will walk away from their long-term intellectual consistency on issues of foreign policy. Yeah, of course, because they're fucking hypocrites. Um <laughs> <laughs> some will. I saw. I saw some uh, already complaining today that um, you know Trump has decided not to bring up any human rights abuses in this meeting at all. Um, which you know I'm not terribly surprised because I don't. I know that Trump is not a, a human rights crusader. Um, <laughs> but again, look, I, I remember you know a lot of the criticism of the Iran deal was. Okay, well, you know, what about all of Iran's, uh, you know, state-sponsored terror around the Middle East? What about their missile production? What about all this other stuff? And it's like, yeah, we know Iran does a lot of bad shit. These negotiations were about nuclear weapons and the potential for them to develop nuclear weapons, which would change the game in the Middle East. And our idea is not our, – our thought in the Iran deal was not, you know, we'll do this deal and then suddenly everything in Iran will be wonderful – it's that the, the the worst threat here is a nuclear armed Iran. And I think look, and I think with North Korea, the same thing. The worst threat here is Iran is North Korea having a whole bunch of nuclear weapons, especially nuclear weapons that can strike the United States. And if for some reason we can um, you know, neutralize that threat, there's probably still gonna be awful human rights abuses in North Korea and awful um, other things that they do that we should also continue to try to take care of and to stop. But you know, this focus is on nuclear weapons. I absolutely think he should have brought it. He should bring it up or should have brought it up, depending on what timeline you're we're existing in right now. Um, it would be perfunctory at best, even with a different president who actually seemed to care about human rights. Right. But we should get the best deal we can that makes the world as safe as possible. And that, to your point, that's not going to get, that's not going to solve all the problems in North Korea for sure. But, but I think it is important in how the president of the United States addresses, responds to, tweets about someone who runs death camps in his country that we don't lose sight of that fact in turning this into some sort of bromance. That's right. Right. Agreed. So I think like that has – that should be. It won't be, but it should be in part of the context for how we discuss – and how Trump discusses Kim Jong-un and the North Korean regime. When you walk out and say, he's a great guy, I respect him a lot, way better than Justin. Like, that has consequences. <laughs> it sends a message to human rights abusers in other authoritarian regimes all over the world. Right? We have to have, and not. I'm not for any way saying the Obama administration was perfect on this. We absolutely were not. But we we need to value the idea is standing up for human rights. And if you're just going to give a real pat on the back uh, and some Twitter plaudits to a guy who runs death camps and stars his country, that's a bad thing. And 
and I think Trump should be criticized for that if and when he does that. Yeah, Kim Jong Un is not your BFF. Um, all right, let's talk about some healthcare news. Uh, last week, the Trump administration's Justice Department said it would no longer defend the Affordable Care Act in court, specifically the part of the law that protects uh, up to 130 million Americans with pre-existing conditions from being denied coverage by insurance companies. The Justice Department took the position as part of a case in which Texas and 19 other conservative attorney general, attorneys general are challenging the Affordable Care Act as unconstitutional. Um, we are going to talk about what an unusual and dramatic step this is by the Justice Department with our guest, Don Verrilli, whose job it was to defend the ACA to the Supreme Court when he was Obama's solicitor general. Um, but I thought you and I should talk about sort of the political aspects of this story first. Um, First of all, just another example of how unbelievably awful Jeff Sessions is as attorney general. Um, There was this decision that happened. I think this came out on Thursday night. Um, Today, on Monday, um, Jeff Sessions, by the way, also decided that uh, the United States will no longer grant asylum to victims of domestic violence or gang violence that those will no longer be categories by which we look to people coming here from other countries fleeing violence and say, we will grant you asylum, which is just beyond despicable to me. And we should just take a, a second to talk about that before we get back to the healthcare thing. It is. It runs so counter to who we as Americans at least thought we were prior to this moment that it is. It is sickening. And I think it is a reminder, and I don't want to get overly dark here, but we get caught up in the tweets and the and the Mueller investigation and what crazy thing did Trump do today or where is Melania or all of this. And what we are missing underneath even the policy travesties of this administration is just this fundamental shift in what it means to be an American, what it means to be America. That it just the, some very basic things that have been at the core of – our national narrative to ourselves of why we thought our country was exceptional and different. And we, like I said, we do, I say this all the time. We do, we have very often failed to live up to that belief in ourselves, but we are Trump in sessions and Kirsten Nielsen and everyone else are eroding that on a daily basis because the, the president is for better or worse, sets the moral tone for the country. And we have an amoral human being in that office right now. And so the idea is we're now going to polarize the country around this idea. It is it will now be, for a significant portion of the Republican Party, a sign of weakness to care about the most vulnerable immigrants, the ones that, despite all the other fights about legalization, the dreamers, anything else, the one thing that there has been some measure of bipartisan agreement on was asylum seekers. That was truly at the core yeah. of what our country was about. And that, that changed today. Yeah. And it's going to take a lot of work to get that back. It really is. This decision also reveals that Donald Trump's immigration policy is not about fixing a broken immigration system. It is not about protecting Americans from crime or from gangs or from drugs. It is not about protecting American jobs, because if it was, there are a whole bunch of policies that they could have pursued that would have maybe done those things. This immigration policy is about cruelty. It is about telling people from other countries, you do not look like we do. 
and we do not want you here. We are going to separate. We're going to tear away children from their parents when they come here fleeing from violence. Um, For all the talk about MS-13, we want to protect Americans from gangs. These are people who are fleeing from gangs, fleeing from gang violence, fleeing from domestic violence, coming to the United States saying, please save me. Do not send me back here. Save me. Save my children. And we are saying, no, go back. We don't want you. And there is no good reason for that. There's no reason for that other than pure fucking racism. It is despicable. Despicable. The message and belief of the Republican Party under Trump and the message we're sending to the world is that empathy is weakness. That's right. That compassion is weakness. That if you feel for these people, then you are soft and you are not welcome. And that we're, that is a lesson that we are teaching to a generation of Trump supporters. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the, we are digging ourselves in this country. Trump, or let me put it this way. Trump is digging America into a deep moral hole that's going to take a long time to come out. Yeah. And by the way, you know, everyone was, we've said this before too. Why does Jeff Sessions still keep his job after Trump attacks him on Twitter all the time about the Russia investigation? Well, Jeff Sessions keeps his job because while Rod Rosenstein is dealing with the Russia investigation and is in the spotlight, Jeff Sessions can go off and do all the horrible things on immigration that he's been dreaming about doing his entire career. And this, and now back to this Affordable Care Act decision, this is another thing that Jeff Sessions gets to do, which is take this very unusual step. Um, very not unprecedented, but almost unprecedented step of saying that the uh, Justice Department is not going to defend the law of the land. And I have to say, politically, last week we were talking about how to keep healthcare in the news, since it's the top issue for most voters. Is this an actual gift for Democrats, this decision? And how should we talk about it? How should Democrats talk about it from now until the election? I think the simplest message is Trump, the Trump administration, the Republicans want to make believe that pre protections for, for people with pre-existing conditions is unconstitutional. And they want to take those, pre, those, those protections away from tens of millions of Americans. Yeah. If you want to stop that from happening, elect Democrats. Yeah. And look, that's, a, and that's a message that that's not just going to be popular with democratic voters or even independent voters, but Republican voters as well. I mean, Donald Trump himself at the beginning, when he first became president, said, well, I, the pre-existing condition part of the law, I like that. That's good. Um, of course, he then did everything he could to undermine it because he either doesn't care or he's a liar. Or he's too stupid to understand how the law works. Probably a combination of all of the above. Um, but now you're right. His administration is on record saying that pre-existing conditions, they believe that the law that protects people with pre-existing conditions is unconstitutional and they are siding with insurance companies that want to screw people over. That's where the Trump administration put themselves. And even Donald Trump, by the way, can't believe that this is politically smart because of all the things he talks about on Twitter, of all the comments he makes, he has not said a word about this, a word, because he knows how unpopular it is. But this is going to be one of those things where this is a gigantic, massively consequential thing. We're talking about it here. Our guest is going to talk about it. But it's also happened in the week of the summit, the week of the war the war with Canada of 2018. <laughs> and it is going to be incumbent upon we'll, – we will do our part with our – Little microphones here, um, but Democrats are going to have to carry this message every single day 
in every way possible on the campaign trail. Paid media, earned media. And I think one of the tests will be, I can't remember if we talked about this last week, but Mitch McConnell and what would be a bit of massive but somewhat impressively strategic cynicism, uh, cancel the August recess so the Democrats who need to go home and campaign cannot do so. And Senator Schumer and the Democrats said they were going to spend that time, they were going to make that health care month and spend that time talking about health care. So this will be the test. Can they leverage that month to draw attention and focus to health care? And I think that's the exact right approach to what's a pretty tough deal that McConnell's handled them, handed them. But it's that like they'll do that in August and then you got to do it every day between now and Election Day. Yeah, that's that's smart of Schumer. Um, and one more thing. We were also talking last week with uh, Ron Klain about how the court should be a top issue for uh, our base, for Democratic voters in 2018. Well, now we have now we've seen how Trump and the Republicans are trying to use the courts to undo the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and we also had a ruling today from the Supreme Court that said the state of Ohio is allowed to purge voters from the voter rolls uh, just because they haven't voted in a while, uh, which is something that will disproportionately disenfranchise uh, people of color, uh, people who are poor, people who don't vote very often. And it is an awful decision. I saw, uh, I saw Tim Miller on Twitter say, you know, I'd love to hear the MAGA people or even conservatives actually try to defend why this is the right decision to say – it is okay for a state to take people who have registered to vote off the voter registration rolls just because they haven't voted in a couple of years. Um, and I didn't see any good. Uh, I didn't see any good responses to Tim. I didn't see any good defenses there. It is just yeah, unbelievable. I, I, I had the answer, which was it helps them win. <laughs> That's, That's the true answer. There's no, there's no other argument. That's what this is about. Th- nothing more. Yeah, and this is and look at this. If you don't think the court's important, you don't think the court is a big issue. You know, we have one of these justices retire. Um, We are going to have, and and Trump gets to appoint a justice like Neil Gorsuch. Uh, This was a five-four decision today. It was it was it was down to five-four. We get another justice like Gorsuch. um, Things like the Affordable Care Act are in jeopardy. Things like voter protections, voter enfranchise, uh, people voting rights are in jeopardy here. it is in you know Jeff Sessions and his Justice Department. They get to do whatever they want. It is a bad, bad combination, and people should very much care about this issue as we head into November. Um, but now, uh, when we come back, we will talk more about this: um, the decision of the Justice Department not to defend the Affordable Care Act, uh, with a man who knows this issue very well, uh, the former Solicitor General of the United States, Don Verrilli. When we come back. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nuh-uh. Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm. Sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. On the pod today, we have the former Solicitor General of the United States, Don Verrilli. Don, welcome. Ah, it's great to be talking with you. How are you guys? We're good. We're good. We miss you. I miss you, too. We're good, all things considered. I mean, yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, Don, we wanted to bring you on to talk about the Justice Department's decision not to defend the Affordable Care Act in court. Um, this is obviously a law that's been challenged many times before. You defended it before the Supreme Court in 2012. What was your first reaction when you heard that the current leadership of the Justice Department no longer wanted to defend critical sections of this law? Well, it was really sad. You know, I try to be fair-minded and think, put myself in the other person's shoes and think, you know, is there some way you can justify this? But got to say, I just don't see it. The, it's a job of the Justice Department and uh, the to it's the job of the Justice Department to defend statutes when they're attacked as constitutional, and we can talk about why and. Uh, it's really hard to see a good reason that would justify them deciding that they weren't going to step up and defend this law. Yeah, I was going to say, so how does it work when the Justice Department reaches this kind of decision to not defend a current law? What kind of precedent is there for this? How unusual is it? And, you know, why is there sort of this precedent in place that, you know, the Justice Department is supposed to defend laws even if they don't necessarily, even if the current administration doesn't necessarily agree with them? Right. Well, the, you know, we can descend into legal wonkery, but basically it's a pretty common sense notion, which is that in our system, the Congress makes the law. And if you want to change the law, you go to Congress. So if a new president comes in, a new executive, and they don't like a law in the books, the answer is go to Congress and try to change it. And of course, that's exactly what President Trump uh, and the Republicans tried to do, and the, and the Congress refused to repeal the ACA. The problem with not defending a law in court when someone's challenged it as constitutional is that there's a way in which you're really taking the law into your own hands and uh, deciding that you're going to change the law by not defending it and allowing the courts to strike it down rather than going through the process under our constitution that you're supposed to go through, which is having Congress pass a new law. So that's that's the basic principle. And there's a there are some occasions on which the Justice Department won't defend the law, but they're very rare. And the basic standard that the Justice Department historically applies is the standard of whether there is a reasonable argument available to defend the law against constitutional challenge. And if there is, then the Justice Department is supposed to defend the law. It's only when there isn't that uh, the Justice Department goes in and says we can't defend the law. And so – it has happened sometimes in our history, but it's uh, very rare. And I think the the real problem here is it's 
very hard to get to the conclusion that there's no reasonable argument to defend the law in the face of the challenge that Texas and these other states have brought. Don, I think this was before your time as Solicitor General, but um, I may have my timeline wrong. But how would you compare and contrast this to the decision of Barack Obama's DOJ to not defend uh, sections of DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act? Yeah, right. Everybody's bringing up that comparison now. And I I wasn't yet SG and I actually didn't play any part in the decision not to defend DOMA because the law firm I had worked for before going to the government brought one of the challenges to DOMA and so I was within two years of me coming in and so I didn't participate in that decision. But I think I understand it pretty well and I think I can explain the difference and I think there are two really big differences. Uh, And the first one is this. Uh, That decision was made not to defend DOMA in 2011. And DOMA, of course, had been passed some, what, 15 years earlier. And there had been really important developments in those 15 years. One was, I think, as a society, we came to have an understanding that a law that we maybe thought in the mid-1990s was uh, an acceptable law came to be understood as something that was totally unjustifiable discrimination against people uh, for no good reason. And then equally importantly, maybe more importantly for this conversation, in 2003, the Supreme Court decided a case called Lawrence against Texas, which said that it was unconstitutional to criminalize consensual same-sex relationships. And and basically recognize the premise of constitutional dignity for gay and lesbian people. And so when you come to the question of whether there's a reasonable argument to defend the constitutionality of DOMA in 2011, you've got to take those developments into account. Contrast that with uh, what we have here. The law that's allegedly unconstitutional, um, the law that zeroed out the tax payment you had to make if you didn't have health insurance under the ACA, that law was signed by this president just a few months ago. Presumably, he didn't think the law was unconstitutional when he signed it uh, into law and there hasn't been any intervening change in the law or in society or in factual circumstances uh, that's anything comparable to what happened with respect to DOMA. And then there's another uh, point too. Again, this is kind of a wonkish point, but I do think it's really important that you know, even if you think that zeroing out the tax for not having insurance makes the mandate provision of the law unconstitutional standing alone, and even if you think there's no reasonable argument for that, you know that that doesn't mean you bring the entire ACA down, or you you also wipe out the prohibition on discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. The question under the law is whether Congress would have wanted those other provisions to survive even if this invalid provision was found unconstitutional. And the answer to that seems to me to be blazingly obvious because the Congress in 2017, it zeroed out the tax but it left all the rest of the law in place. And you know that's not an ideological thing. That's just as a neutral principle that Justice Department's supposed to apply and courts are supposed to apply in adjudicating these cases. It says that you know you try to respect the intent of Congress as the body in our system that makes laws and you preserve as much of the law as you can preserve consistent with holding the other provision unconstitutional. You know, I mean that's exactly what happened 
in the ACA itself with the decision of Chief Justice Roberts about Medicaid and the Medicaid expansion in 2012. Remember, he struck down the mandatory character of that. He said that uh, Congress couldn't require every state to adopt a Medicaid expansion. But then all he did was strike down the mandatory part of the expansion. He left the expansion in place and made it optional for states to to accept it. And that's an application of this principle, which, as I said, is just a neutral principle. It's not, it's not really even about what your views of the Constitution or substantive law uh, amount to. It's about how courts are supposed to behave in a situation like this and respecting the, the judgments of Congress, which, after all, are a reflection of the democratic process and have that democratic legitimacy to them. Don, I don't know if you remember this, but in your confirmation hearing, a senator who looked a lot like Attorney General Jeff Sessions said that had he been that the solicitor he said that that the solicitor general should have resigned over the decision not to defend Doma. So he either, as we know from some of his comments, he's a short memory or no sense of irony. So I I, I found that in the research I found pretty amusing. Yeah, I, I do remember that. Dan. <laughs> <laughs> so Don, what what are the next steps with this case? Like, what happens now that the government is not defending the law when this case? goes to court. The, the, the cases before a federal district judge, trial level judge down in Texas and it was brought by these 20 states and of course you now have DOJ coming in and it's not just that they didn't defend. They filed a brief saying they thought the law was unconstitutional and that, it, that, that you should also strike down the ban on discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. But a number of other states led by California have intervened in the case to defend the law's constitutionality. So I suspect what will happen, pretty sure what will happen is that California and those other states will take up the role of providing a, a, a vigorous, aggressive defense of the constitutionality of the law. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure as this case goes through the system that ultimately that's the view that's going to prevail. Um. What concerns you most about the precedent that this current Justice Department is setting by taking this kind of action? What do you, what do you think is at stake for the rule of law here? Well, I do think it goes right to the heart of the question of respect for the rule of law because the risk of allowing uh, of this kind of a, a decision is that you'll just make it as an administration on the basis of political considerations and not really be applying the standard that the department historically applies, which is whether there's a reasonable argument to defend the law. When laws that you don't like are challenged, you'll just make a judgment that you won't defend them and then you'll uh, go in and you'll tell the court you don't think there's a reasonable argument, uh, but it'll become increasingly clear and that what you're doing is essentially making a political judgment to allow the courts to to take out a law that you don't like rather than going through the process that our constitution provides for which is having the congress consider whether to do that and the the more you do it the easier it's going to get to do and then when one administration does it and the opposing party comes in later then of course the risk is that they're going to point to the precedent of the prior administration and say, well, if they did it, we should do it too. And you're going to go into a, one of these downward spirals that we've seen over and over again with respect to the, the norms that really matter and really kind of hold our constitution together and make it work. Now, Don, I read that uh, three Justice Department officials uh, registered a protest over this decision. 
Um, you obviously worked in the Justice Department a long time. Uh, a lot of your colleagues, former colleagues are there. What do you think about this? Yeah, so what they did was they uh, withdrew from the case. They took their names off the brief. Um, that was an extremely unusual uh, thing to do. Um, and while I, I don't know what was in their minds, I haven't talked to them, it's a pretty strong signal that they felt like they could not in good faith associate themselves with uh, the position being taken. And that's pretty serious and really rare. And you know, the lawyers in the Justice Department, I worked with them for the better part of eight years and uh, came to have just incredible respect for them because they are apolitical. You know, they, they do put their political views aside. They serve Democratic administrations and Republican administrations and they very often go into court and argue on behalf of the United States for a position that they don't agree with personally and they take great professional pride in their ability to do that. So assuming as I think it's fair to assume that they did find that this one was over the line, that's, that's really something. It's quite significant. Yes. Well, hopefully as this case moves on, um, the courts will uh, will find that uh, the lawsuit is uh, somewhat frivolous <laughs> against the ACA here. Um, well, you know, but th- we need to be careful about that because you remember back with the initial challenges to the ACA when they were filed in 2010, a lot of folks on the progressive side, they, they had kind of a similar reaction saying, well, you know, this challenge is – got no substance to it at all and didn't really take it seriously. And on the right, the, you know, the machine uh, whirled, into, whirled into gear and, and uh, the argument gained more and more steam over time and what seemed like a fringe position in 2010 became a mainstream position on the right in 2012 and yeah. came within a hair's breadth of losing that case. So I think we need to be on our toes about this too because I imagine that we're going to see something quite like that as this goes forward. Good thing to keep in mind. Um, Don, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great talking with you. All right. Thanks to Don Varelli for joining us today. And um, we will see you again on Thursday. And it will be uh, me, Tommy, and Ben Rhodes right here in studio talking about the news. Talk to everyone next week. All right. See you later. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.